What if the way we're responding to the crisis is the crisis? Only once we are lost can we find new gods. You guys, I don't even know how to do this podcast intro. I'll start with the basics. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Trevor Bohm. I'm the founder of the Uncivilized Podcast and the author of the books, Today I Rise and Man Uncivilized. I also run the Uncivilized Nation. As you can tell, do some podcasting from time to time. Now, today's episode is with a man named Bio Okamalafi. And I was given Bio's name by my good brother, Michael Gay, who I said, Michael, if you could have me interview anybody in the world, who would it be? And he said, without a question, Bio Okamalafi. I said, tell me about him. He goes, I can't. You just, you just need to talk to him. And so the reason I said I don't even know how to do this intro is I don't know if any of you have listened to the Tim Ferriss, Balaji, uh, Srinivasan interviews, where multiple times throughout the interviews, you can tell Tim Ferriss is completely lost, and that does not happen to Tim Ferriss. Now, I'm not Tim Ferriss, yet I will say that multiple times throughout this interview, the part of my brain kept thinking, okay, you better come up with a good question. You better come up with an, what did he just say? Did he really just say that? I don't, I think I know what that means. So I almost titled this episode, If Plant Medicine Were a Podcast, because I've sat with this episode, I've listened to it, I've meditated on it, I've, I've tried to digest it. The, the way this man looks at the world and the poetic way with which he speaks is so magical, it truly is like tripping. Right? It truly does take you to a different part of your brain, to a different part of your being, to a different part of understanding humanity, understanding history, understanding culture, understanding everything that will rattle you to your core. I mean, just listen to the title. This is a line he said in the middle of the podcast. I mean, we even opened with, that, with me asking, sir, how do you pronounce your name? I don't know how to pronounce your name properly. And I got a five-minute lesson on the opportunity that exists when we mispronounce someone's name, that it gives that person an opportunity to view their name from a different lens and then their whole human experience from a different lens. That was before we even hit record. So folks, welcome to If Plant Medicine Were a Podcast with Bio Akamalafe. Please sit down for this one. Please buckle up for this one. Get your finest glass of kombucha, light a cigar, throw on your uncivilized shirt, and open your ears and heart. Without further ado, Bio Akamalafe. Bio Akamalafe. Welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast, brother. It is my pleasure to be here, Trevor. Thank you. You know, and I, I, I want to just share with the audience before we started, uh, I'm really good friends with this amazing therapist named Michael Gay. And this was maybe four or five months ago, I was sitting down with Michael after a workshop that we ran. And I said, if there's any one person that you would have me interview, who would it be? And he goes, there's a guy, you probably haven't heard of him. His name is Bio Kamalafe. Look him up, see if you can get him on the podcast. And so that is very, as I was saying, I know very little about you, uh, except that you've come with one of the strongest recommendations I've ever been given. So welcome, thank you. And for people who may not know who you are in the world and what you do, I would love to hear the explanation that you gave me, because folks, this is one of the most articulate, poetic men you're, you're ever going to listen to. So Bio, please take it away. Tell, tell us what, what lights you up in the world. Uh, thank you, my dear brother. Um, what lights me up? That's a beautiful 
and and yet unusual description of what I do. It, maybe what endarkens me would be the way I describe Ooh. it. <laughs> what endarkens me? What brings me to the soil? What what pulls me to the ground? What situates me? What anchors me? Would be it. I come from a I come from a people that were fodder for for the instrumentality of modern civilization. The Yoruba people of West Africa were mostly transported across the Atlantic Ocean to serve the needs of plantations, to serve the needs, the needs of progress and growth. And we've been fighting for so long to find a place within this system, this colonizing ethic. Um, but some of us are noticing, and this might be a good story to start with, that there is another idea that is present in this story of loss, in this story of traumatic uh, displacement. There's, a, there's another story. Some seditious, mutinous elders whisper that a trickster traveled with the slaves across the Atlantic, which immediately, and I don't even need to go deeper into what that story implies, but it immediately suggests that the Static binary, the story of the perpetrator versus the victim, mm. the colonizer versus the colonized, the oppressor versus the oppressed, is only part of the story. Mm. There are other things that were afoot that were not immediate or available for analysis, but that a god, a trickster god, no less, traveled with the slaves to seed hip-hop in the Bronx, to seed Santeria, and Gayap, and Candomble, and Capoeira in Brazil, to seed those sounds and tastes in the Caribbean is, is, is the joy, is the joyful invitation of my work. Mm. So I'm coming down to earth. I'm, I'm coming down from my perch, which is transcendent and exhausted. Mm. And I'm falling down to earth and I'm not arriving intact. And my work is around us touching the pieces and loving them. Ooh, beautiful, thank you. You know, one of the intriguing things you said to me before we hit record was that you're reframing trauma. Yes. And I would love to dive into that. And then the second thing which grabbed me even further, which I'd love to get into after was, you want to make the strange familiar and the familiar strange. Yes. How did you, before we get into those particulars, what shaped your unique lens of the world? Because even how you've answered the first question I've asked is different than anybody else I've, I've ever asked. So mm. how did you come into being you in, in, and, and come into, I'm going to fumble through this question, yeah. into your unique expression of language? Brother, I don't know. I mean, everything I could say to this point would be a lie. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's a I don't think it's a point of mastery like I did this or I did that. Um I think it's a gift. Mm. I think I think there's many parts cultural context. I mean, the Yoruba people are very poetic. One could say that. I mean, an anthropological account would definitely take into consideration 
the ways that we use proverbs, mm. the fact that we're a very oral culture. You know, hip hop has some of its ancient legacy, not again, not from the Bronx, not from New York, but from, from the griots, the storytellers from West Africa who would travel from village to village and announce a king's or a royal's decree or something like that. And also from the Babalao, who is a priest from Yoruba traditions, like a shaman, uh, who would meet another shaman on the road and they would battle with words. It was almost like battle rapping, mm -hmm. right? Before battle rapping was invented. Yeah. Somehow I am gastronomically, molecularly, spiritually, socially, culturally, biologically entangled with that. <laughs> and it, and it, would be, it would be impossible for me to say, yeah, this is where it started for me. But I, maybe I can draw for historical purposes and for the purpose of our conversation, maybe I could draw a line at the point at which I, I think I can determine that things started to shift for me. I was brought up in a really Christian world. And then suddenly, to cut the long story short, I wrote a book about this. Um, I, um, I met the Babalaos that I've just spoken about. I was a psychologist. And here's where we segue into conversations around trauma. I was a psychologist uh, investigating the ways that ni the Nigerian um, psychiatric context was inadequate to respond to the mental health crises in our country. And we didn't have enough bed spaces for 200 million people, just three psychiatric hospitals of, of great reputation. Um, but I started to ask, what if the way we're responding to the crisis is the crisis, right? And, and, and so instead of trying to tether my doctorate degree around how we can impact policymaking of the Ministry of Health or attract funding to psychiatric spaces, I decided to go underground, which is, I have a great affinity with the underground, with the subterranean, with, with fugitive depths. Mm -hmm. And so I went to the underground, so to speak, and I learned from Babalaos who had on the undetected, undecipherable, and largely unanalyzed ways of dealing with their patients, their clients. It, it didn't, it wasn't considered orthodox, scientific orthodoxy, but it was powerful. It was culturally situated. And I learned with them. And they taught me things that some of which I cannot repeat here, but they taught me about a world that was animated, vibrant, intense, alive. And they, they started me on a journey, you know, where I am now. Of course, I became a professor of clinical psychology, but where I am now, I'm learning to unsee the things that I've been taught. I sometimes describe myself as a recovering psychologist. <laughs> um, and I don't mean to be, um, I don't mean to be flippant. When I say that, I mean to suggest that there are lots of things, there are, there are, there are moments when clarity obscures things, mm. when seen clearly actually becomes a disability. And I'm learning to unsee the things that I've been trained in 
and to see from new eyes. With regards to issues like trauma, which in my recent work, which is still ongoing and developing, is the modern attempt to create bodies to fit within modern civilization. That is, trauma is not what happens to bodies. It is how bodies reinforce boundaries. Mm. It is how the human subject reinforces its human boundaries. And maybe I'll just end with this story, and that might also feed my account of trauma. That one of those babalawas I asked, I asked him a question. I said, how do you understand auditory hallucination, which is the phenomenon of hearing voices reported by clients in their heads, right? Voices that should not be there. How do you, how do you treat that? How do you diagnose that? How do you represent that on your classificatory systems? And he said, he immediately had this response in his body first, like, what are you talking about? Are you, are you saying that you guys give medicine to people to get rid of those voices? And I said, yeah, most of the time. And he said, why would you want to medicate that? Why, what's wrong with this kid? Why would you want to do that? What if that's the voice of your mother? What if that's a voice of an ancestor? What if that's a voice of a grandmother speaking to you? To him, it was painfully obvious that what we represent as the human subject or the human mind is a porosity. It's, it's a monstrous tentacularity that connects space-time in ways that are not available or not usually available for those of us who are good citizens, mm. who are gestating in cities, mm -hmm. right? It was, a, it was immediately palpable and obvious to him that we can speak to plants, that we can communicate with things that are supposedly non-sentient. Mm -hmm. So this invites me to notice that sometimes the things that penetrate and disturb the boundaries we're used to, sometimes painfully, could be the world calling upon us to lose our way in order to find it a different way. Yeah, wow. I'll stop there for now. Wow. Uh, I have a lot of questions. I'm not sure which one to I know. ask. I know. I, yeah. know. I, have, I have these long takes. That no, they're my wife beautiful. Really <laughs> <laughs> it's, there's so many nuggets in there. I, I would love if you would just tease out a little bit. In the, let me just set the frame first. I'm so curious of how you view trauma through the lens of a storyteller. Yeah. And from that perspective, if you could just expand upon the idea that clarity could be a limiting factor, or I'm not sure exactly the words you used. Uh, right. But clarity could be, we could be getting in the way of ourselves because we have clarity. Would you mind yeah. just teasing that sentence out a bit further under the frame of, trauma and story interacting together, or trauma and story being brothers and sisters? I think one way to respond to that would be to say plainly um, that at work in modernity, what we speculatively, theoretically, always performatively call modernity is the trope of ongoing clarity, that we are a species invested with divine attributes. Mm. And that if we give it a go, as we have been doing for some time now, we could summarily arrive at answers to everything. Uh, <laughs> right. right. 
it just needs some fuel, what you Americans will call gas, right? I we just need gas in the tank of feet on the pedal and a highway. And we would arrive at answers to why we exist, you know, answers to climate chaos and stuff. Basically, the world is hopelessly open um, for our analysis, and it is fundamentally intelligible. So these are ideologies, deeply rooted assumptions we often don't question, right? That we will arrive, we will get there. Right. Think about James Webb, brother, right? The James Webb telescope. Mm -hmm. Like news reports coming in every day. Can you hear voices in the background? No? No, you're clear. Oh, good, good. Okay, good. I'm hearing them loud and clear. (laughs) Um, News reports coming in every day into our computer screens and our phone screens say that, well, clarity, unprecedented clarity. Now we're seeing a galaxy. Now we're seeing this. Now we can see that distant star in high definition. Have you ever wandered into a shopping mall and seen in a series of higher definition technologies like a television promising not just 2D, I'm not sure these are the skills, but 2D, 3D, 4HD clarity. Yeah. And have you ever wondered what is the end to clarity? Hmm. Or do I really need to see Nicolas Cage's skin so up close like at what at what point does clarity become (laughs) abusive (laughs) at what point does it become like this is too much i don't need all of this clarity right and maybe my point with that is that that assumption is already upended by traditions even within modernity like quantum science like quantum entanglement that suggests that it's not you know, it's not the case that if you lean closely, the more you see, mm. like, like the double slit experiment, the dual slit experiment, it disturbs distance, like things that are far apart, acting upon one another as if they were intimately entangled. Mm. And things that should we bring ourselves closely to behave in ways that are rapturously promiscuous, mm. like they don't adhere to our understanding of how things should work. It seems that there is a poetic heart at the, or poetic, you know, a confusion, so to speak, at the heart of clarity. The more you see, or the more you lean in, the less you see, which is crazy, right? But which is what many indigenous traditions have always been in touch with. Mm. So this is what I mean by clarity getting in the way we would suppose that more data, for instance, would address climate chaos. Right. Let's just add more data in. Mm-hmm. Let's just throw more money. And it's this reductionistic notion that more of the same would bring us to a place that is different. Mm. And, 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 and that, is, that is deeply problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it dances with the story of trauma. The story of trauma is that if we can get ourselves and remove ourselves away from the wilds beyond our fences, the monsters yonder, the dragons, then we will be safe, right? But in in some kind of phenomenon, what I call ironic exposure, the more we have removed ourselves and quarantined ourselves from the world, 
the more disabled, the more suffering we have enabled. Mm -hmm. Colonization is removal, is distancing ourselves from the world. Mm -hmm. um, I think trauma is an attempt to name that distance mm -hmm. and is silently an invitation for us to lose our way. And maybe this is where I would end this long take by saying, this is why I often would say that healing itself can often get in the way of transformation, right? Because healing, what we call trauma healing, could actually reinforce the same parameters and, and foundations and context that gives trauma its meaning. Ooh. I told you, uh, I hope you were following along and, and, and not just making fun of me along the way for my struggle to keep up. Many of you have asked, how do you support the podcast? As I said, I don't want to start a GoFundMe or anything like that. But what you can do is go to shop.manuncivilized.com and get yourself some t-shirts, get yourself some sweatshirts, take a course, buy the book, get a gift for somebody. We have new stuff for kids that is kid appropriate. We have new black mugs. We have fight hurt t-shirts. We have all the sexiest clothes that the world could ever imagine giving you all right there, shop.manuncivilized. If that's too much for you, just keep loving what we do. Keep supporting what we do. I appreciate you to no end. Without further ado, this man who is blowing my mind and heart wide open, Bio Okomalafe. Are you saying then that we, we need to approach trauma from a different angle or stop approaching trauma? A babalao, when he wants to heal, would come to you often with a knife, right? I often thought that these traditions were barbaric because I was well-educated, you see. Right. And to be educated is to be educated away from place, hmm. away from culture, away from language. I don't even speak my own language, right? So this is the loss that is born in my breasts, hmm. in my chest, um, but a babalao, I segued, um, would come with a knife. And the idea is that sometimes it is the case that the medicine with which we use to heal a wound becomes part of the wound or becomes part of the sickness. Biologists already know this when they name the concept of iatrogenesis, right? Or an iatrogenic intervention. That is the attempt to cure becomes part of the sickness. What do we do when our activism becomes sick or when medicine itself becomes sick? We need then to disrupt the cyclicity, to cut part of the flesh open, to invite a breakthrough of some kind. If you were to think of this as a, psych a toxic cyclicity, right. it's like, it's like, Trevor, maybe I don't see you as that person, but Maybe at night you wear a costume and you're a vigilante, you're a Batman figure. Right? And, <laughs> and only on Thursdays. Yeah. <laughs> only on Thursdays, you're Batman or something. I don't know, maybe um Mike Man or something. Um, and you prowl the streets and you clean it. You know, you clean it. Mm -hmm. So there's no crime. But then at some point you wonder, you, you've done such an effective job that you want crime to happen so you can continue, right? And so you start to long for crime or you actually create the conditions of crime so you can keep your costumed avatar existing. I think that's kind of a situation we're in. 
it's not such a question about moving away from trauma. It's a question about reframing trauma so that we understand that what trauma and what healing from trauma is actually doing is conditioning bodies to live in the space dimensions of modern civilization. And what we need now is to shape shift. This is what the shamans might refer to as losing your way. It's about different cartographies. It's about staying in the places that are troubling with community support, hopefully, and learning to listen, right? Cross-culturally, even the term trauma would be strange where I come from. Mm. I mean, it, it would be foreign and like, I don't understand what this is because immediately to them, they are operating with a different set of principles, a different consciousness, maybe a different cognitive apparatus. And to them, trauma would be a limitation, naming it as trauma, because trauma is not just an experience, brother. Trauma is a political, ideological, industrial makeup. If we're to go into the history, at least one genealogy of trauma, we would speak about Charles Dickens, we would speak about the 19th, uh, 19th century and trains and how victims, contemporary victimology emerged and how the nation state we would speak about so many things and then trauma would look nothing like what you think it is because it's not just a psychological phenomenon. It's a political way of reinforcing what it means to be human. But right now, as a people, I think we need to escape the human. I think we need to become fugitives and learn how to listen to the world because the human is an enlightenment colonial project that was instituted to distance us from the wilds, to distance us from emergence and entanglement. So then are you saying that we need to return back to the wildness and back to more indigenous paradigms? Are you saying that Western civilization and, and how the world is unfolding needs trauma as almost like a fuel or, or creates mm. continue itself? Mm. Yes. I, well, I wouldn't put it as return back to, because that presumes okay. that time proceeds from some indigenous past to some technologically advanced future. That's not the way I see time, but that's not the way I see decolonization either. It's not about returning. It's about, and it's neither, it's not even about situate, creating a binary where we say Western civilization is bad, it's evil, and indigenous traditions are good, <clears throat> right? No. Africans also dabbled in slavery, and it's not even a dabbling. We had slave-based societies as well. We still do, mm. right? So this is not about returning to a pure, a pure past. This right. is about responding or having the capacity to respond differently so that new things might show up. Right now, we're trying to address the Anthropocene, you know, the conditions that geologists call the Anthropocene, which is not just industrial activity or ocean acidification or all these phenomena like greenhouse gas emissions, we're trying to address a whole lot of terrible things. Um, but the problem with that is the way we're responding to the crisis is fueled by the crisis. You understand what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Mm -hmm. We're still, recently I came back from Copenhagen and I shared with them, people who had invited me to speak there, that there was a municipality in, I don't know what it's called, a, a locality in Denmark that had 
paid about $180,000 or $150,000 to clear one of its beaches of seaweed and debris, you know, rubbish. And they did so successfully. The next day, they dumped it back in the same ocean. They dumped it back in the waters mm -hmm. because they didn't exactly know what to do with it. Anytime I travel to the West, I'm always fascinated with the almost religious attitude with which people deposit their wastes in, you know, beautifully designated bins. Like this is recyclable. This is non-recyclable food, plastic stuff. And I laugh. I, I, not out loud. I chuckle to myself. I don't want to be beaten. <laughs> but, I, but I chuckle. And why do I chuckle? Because I know that it doesn't work. Mm. That 90, 90, is it 90 or 95% of waste generated that is supposed to be recycled in the Emerald City and returned to American and European tables as new products is actually deposited in my playground in Africa. Mm. in India, in the Gambia, right? right? But, but even with that information, people cannot stop doing it because it feeds a dopamine, a dopamine network that tells us we're doing the good thing. We're on the good side. We're saving the planet. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, it's actually enhancing destruction because it's chasing away other forms of responsibility right. and postponing that because we have to do the right thing. And this is when the right thing gets in the way of the appropriate thing. Right. right. So I'm calling for an, an expansion of responsibility. And this means that we learn to respond differently, but we can only learn to respond differently if we're broken someplace, if we fail. Let me tell you, <laughs> I see your eyes. <laughs> yes, say more about that. If you were to say one more sentence about why we can only respond or why you'd want us to respond from a broken place. It's how I started this whole thing. This is where I've been heading when I said I'm falling down to earth mm. and, and not just me, we are falling down to earth and we will not arrive intact. Mm. The promise of modern civilization is safety, is composure, is mm. coherence, that you are free as the, as an individual, you are self-contained. Everything that is around you is a property to you or potentially so, right? But the world is now dragging on those terms and ideologies in some kind of beautiful, rapturous geo-philosophy and telling us, no, you don't have it all together. You're not all that. Here's a virus to teach you a lesson. Mm. Um, with, with, there are other things that are at work that are bigger than your imperatives, humans. Mm. And so it's this opening, this failure, this displacement that allows novelty to happen. This is what I call generative incapacitation. Generative incapacitation. That is the place we fall, there's treasure, right? And this is why the shaman comes to cut open something, right? That it's only in the place where you're wounded that new voices can come through. Mm. And this is... This story is part of Black history. This story is part of indigenous traditions, that it is when we were lost that we learned to find new gods. You can study Candomblé, you know, in Brazil. It's when they were displaced from home in Africa that new gods showed up, and new gods are new realities. Mm. So I feel that 
modern civilization in its composure, in its coddling of our minds, it is constantly suffering openings, breakthroughs. We do our darndest to close it up again. Trauma is like a band-aid to close up the otherwise, right? Trauma is the way we plaster up and close up the voices beyond, right? What we want to do is to stay in the cracks, brother, to find pedagogies that teach us to stay within the cracks and support each other. This is what Donna Haraway, an American biologist, will call staying with the trouble. Mm. Staying with the trouble. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I would love to shift this Yes. From trauma itself. First of all, this is fascinating. So just thank you so much for, I, I'm going to listen to this probably six more times and, <laughs> and digest it all. It, it feels like what you're saying as well is personal trauma or, or how we're treating the individual patient in the West or in civil, civilized world is how we're treating the world. And it is this yeah. perpetuation of the idea that is creating more and more challenge. If yes. I were to give you, you know, Harry Potter's magic wand, how would you shift the culture or society in the West or in the East or wherever to, to make the actual change that you think will bring about a different outcome? Well, first, I would throw away the wand and okay. <laughs> I would throw away that wand and, and just recognize the magic that is already there that will not emanate from little sticks um, but I understand your question and its metaphorical depth and richness. Um, let me put it this way, that psychology is not the treatment or psychotherapy is not the treatment of individuals. Psychotherapy is the creation of individuals. Same I, like, I, I like it the way a professor emeritus of psychology, a friend of mine, um, Wendy Holloway, put it to me recently. She says, psychology is the policeman of capitalism, Ooh. right? But it, think about it this way. I'm dancing from here to there, taking sure, quantum sure, leaps. Sure. Um, you might think that the market, the shopping mall, is in response to needs and wants, like um, individual needs and desires and wants. And so because we have these needs, we have a shopping mall, a marketplace to cater to those needs. I need a PlayStation 5. Here you go. I need uh, that beautiful mic. I think that's Blue Sky because I wanted to buy that as well. There you go. There it is. There is your Blue Sky mic. I think, am I, did I get it right? Blue, Blue Yeti. Yes, yes. Blue Yeti. <laughs> but it is, I think it's more, much more insidious than that. I think Capitalism, computational capitalism, is not so much the addressing of needs as it's the creation of the one that needs, mm. right? There's something about, and back to psychology, there's something about psychotherapy that reinforces ideological boundaries, that this is what it means to be an individual. These are practices in the ways that the client space is shaped, in the ways that the clinical alliance is articulated in the ways that we understand the individual, in the ways that even the diagnostic statistical manual, the DSM, has been, you know, articulated over time. This is how we create, reinforce, and engender what it means to be an individual. 
But you see, brother, the individual is probably the most costly thing on the planet today. To be an individual is ontologically costly. It's expensive mm -hmm. because an individual means I am saying that Trevor is cut off from the forest. Trevor is owes no debt to ancestry. He's a man on his own, without debt to to microbes, without any form of allegiance to the world around him. And all he has to do to live is to gather resources to himself. And this is the this is the heart of our crisis in modernity today. We think of ourselves as separate and separable, as cut off from the world. We are lords of the realm. And the world bears this burden of our illusion, if you will, that we are estranged and divine lords of everything. This is why I say the individual is the most costly thing on the planet today. It is too heavy for fragile ecological systems to bear. And so the point then is, if psychology proliferates the individual, then we need to revisit psychology as a discipline itself. Right? We need to revisit the therapy that tells you that you're well. You have a clean bill of health if you do this and that. Mm. What that wellness means is that you keep to the boundaries we've designated and you're fine. You get back into the rat race, keep on being productive. Don't grieve, you know, or grieve for a certain time and not after, only on Thursdays, like you said. <laughs> grieve only on Thursdays. Friday, Saturday, now nah, we'll lock you up. We'll lock you up then and we'll give you drugs mm. to help you get better. But on Thursdays, fine, yeah. right? But that... The, the idea that the world spills, that the world has its own imperatives, that the world is alive, just as alive as we are, is strange and uncomfortable. That's why we need more than healing. We need more than a diagnostic system. We need to shapeshift. And this is a larger politics. I don't know if we can get right down to it in this conversation. We'll need three days. Mm -hmm. I listened to a piece by Francis Weller, if you know that man, uh, a philosopher. And he yes. was saying that, let's just call it the old paradigm was community, family, individual in that order. And in the West, we've created individual, family, community. And yeah. that in itself, that um, inversion of the paradigm is what leads to 99.9% of the suffering that we have here in the West. Mm. So I'm, I'm curious, is, is that, I know it's, it's more simplistic, but is that what you're speaking to? And if so, how do we start to not rewrite the ship? Cause again, that sounds uh, again, simplistic, but how does someone yeah. listening to this bio say, okay, I love this. I feel it. It feels different than just there's, there's, there's a depth to it and a richness to it. That's, it's different than other things I've heard. Now, what do I do? How does the listener start to embody this and incorporate this? It's not that great a leap, actually. When, when we speak about quantum entanglement or a world that is entangling and entangled, um, 
most people start to ask questions like, so how do we get back to an entangled world? That's already a failure of imagination. Mm-hmm. We are already part of an, even the individual, even separation is a form of entanglement, right? <laughs> you, do you understand what I'm trying to say? <laughs> We've never stopped being a part of the world. Mm-hmm. What we're doing as, as gestating bodies within an individualizing trope, what we're doing is performatively denying our entanglement. That is, the individual is not a thing. The individual is a place-making ritual. We are all doing it all the time. We're engaging in this place-making ritual um, in the ways that we visit the dentist, in the ways that we wake up in the morning, in the ways that we define productivity, in ways that are done to us that we may not even realize. For instance, the family, the nuclear family is is a very, very capitalist arrangement. The histories of the ways that we classify breakfast and lunch and dinner, all of these come to us through understandings of labor and productivity and the worker. You see, we live in dense worlds that are overwhelming. And so the question then is not to step out of it or to escape such systems, is to disappoint the claims of this system to be one thing. And let me expand on that a little bit that I think emancipation comes when we turn to those places where you might call it a system has told us not to turn to, right? For instance, get back to work masks the kinds of work that can be done when we grieve. Mm-hmm. I've traveled to many places around the world and these are scientists who understand the, uh, the trauma of these times that we're in trouble as a species. And as a result, they try to call people together to think hard and get serious about solving our problems, right? This is, it's a serious time we're in. This, this demands a serious approach. And then I come in and I say, you know, these are really urgent times. Let us slow down. These are serious times we need to play hard. Mm. Right? It doesn't make sense to them because they think, Again, like Einstein said, it's like trying to address a paradigm with the resources of that paradigm. It only reinforces the paradigm, right? right? What we need is something extra paradigmatic, like a child in play, that the child already knows that a mic is a spaceship, right? And how does a child know that? It's play, it's it's the decolonial mind. This is an unschooled child, knows that I can sit in a carton and pretend that's a boss. Mm-hmm. And, the, and reality would dance around me to protect that, re, to protect that you know, imagination. I think we need forms of play. I think we need forms of post-activism that is not about wresting power from the 1%, but it's about building other spaces of power. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so so the question, what do I do to address the fact that I'm caught up in these systems? I would say the fact that you're asking that question is already a gift. I would say head to the dead ends. Head to the places that are closed, the places where the, the authorities have written, do not come here. Right? And this is a very practical example that I think I'm going to give you. And I just spoke with an unschooling couple 
there's an unschooling movement around the world. People who are, I'm sure you know about this, people who are exploring non-schooling projects. And um, this couple tell me a story about their child asking them a question that where does waste go? Um, and so they, like me, followed waste. Um, they found out that they could categorize in their own philosophical arrangement waste into recyclable and non-recyclable. Um, and they followed recyclable waste and they kept on hitting dead ends. They were shocked. They thought, they imagined that recyclable waste comes back as recycled products, but they found that that's not true at all. That was a dead end. And they realized, my goodness, we're not free at all. We've been told a lie that the world serves, you know, this economic cycle. That's not the case at all. I think if we embark upon fugitive inquiries like that, as small democratic units of people in neighborhoods coming together to ask, su ask such questions, mm -hmm. then we will find different ways of understanding where we're at. But it will not just happen from some genius who comes up with a question. This is not about genius or political will or funding. This is about, it's only in places of brokenness that we can find new ways of addressing our problems. Mm. It's only in places where we don't know how to move further that new ideas come to us. It's in places of trauma, and psychologists call this post-traumatic growth. I think they're catching up. It's in places of depth and endarkenment that we find new light. Mm. And maybe before I end, I'll, I'll tell you another story about that that might make that a metaphor, that might make that a bit um, digestible. Yeah, please, please. I have written on my post-it note, a, a last question to ask you about is, how do you view the role of grief? And how would you, yes. how do we, especially here in America, I've said the, you know, I branded everything civilized and uncivilized. And so yes. the civilized world doesn't know how to eat and doesn't know how to grieve. Yes. Those are our two yes. main problems here. Would you yes. mind sharing that story and, and also talking about how you view the role of grief and how we can perhaps reframe grief, uh, especially here in the West? It's the pursuit of happiness, brother, it, that obscures the role and the contributions of grief to happiness, right? When you live in a binarizing world, where grief is the opposite or the villain or the enemy of joy, then you miss out on the fact that they're entangled with one another. It's only when we learn to hold sadness and embrace it and grief, it's only when our eyes are moistened with tears that we learn to see with new senses and learn to taste with new senses. But this highway mentality, this settlement cognition that we can travel upstream and arrive summarily seems to be getting us nowhere fast, mm. right? Um, I read of this account. Um, you've probably read um, uh, Hitchhiker's um, Guide the to galaxy. the Galaxy. Yeah. Adam, yeah. Douglas Adams. Um, in, I think it was last year, the university in New Zealand published an, a very interesting story about um, trees, I forget the name of these trees, that have the record, you know, ringed records mm -hmm. of a very, very traumatic event 
that happened 42,000 years ago. They named it the Adams event um, because it was 42. And, and Adams spoke about 42 being the answer to everything, right? For those who have read the book. So they named it the Adams event, the polar shift, because some magnetic polar event or reversal event happened that tore the skies, you know, a rift appeared in the skies and, you know, deadening poisonous rays flooded the planet, burning everything, right? And this was 42,000 years ago. So um, this was marked and um, in the bodies of trees. But I found it very interesting that it was also at that 42,000 year mark that we started to see art spring in caves on the ground. Mm. You know, those cave arts, you know, across the world. Yes, the drawings. That it's, it's sprung up around the same time, at this time of loss. So it's almost like proto-human civilizations or communities went underground. They went underground. And I cannot think of a better metaphor for grieving than going underground, mm -hmm. than falling down to earth. They, they buried themselves. But in this place of burial, there was life, strange life, almost like the life, the strange life on a slave ship. There are many stories around that. It wasn't just a place of darkness. It was also a place of seditious joy. But in this underground place, art came, right? And I think that is, in some sense, the story of our times, that as things begin to happen on the surface, we need a way of responding that does not re reinforce the surface, because the surface can only teach us to stay on the surface. Mm. And the surface is part of the problem. We need a way of responding that brings us to diff different places of humble fallings apart. It helps us to see differently. And maybe then art can come. Mm. Maybe then new questions will sprout. Maybe then new ways of seeing the world that is not a, the selfie again and again. There was no selfie in those cave art. It was hands <laughs> and, and beasts. You know, there was no selfie. Maybe our infatuation with ourselves would be broken by something forcing us on the ground. And I think in some sense, the pandemic did that mm -hmm. a little. It forced us into our homes. But we want to get back to normal, you see, brother. And, and that's, I guess, part of the crisis. We patched ourselves up, told ourselves it's all good, and we got back to the shopping mall. Mm -hmm. It was like installing solar panels on a slave ship, mm. right? Let's just get back to normal. Let's just heal the breach in the hull of the slave ship. But we need to go beyond healing the void and responding to it as if it were a messenger of things we do not understand. Yeah, I think I've segued out of my original anticipated point. <laughs> <laughs> That was beautiful and, and a, a beautiful place, I think, to call this. Bio, for people who are interested in, in your writings, your work, your, where they can find you live, where, where are you spending time or where can, I, where can I direct our listeners who are interested in getting even more? I think I could listen to you for the next 12 hours. Uh, so where can I go to get more of you as well? 
you get tired on the on the second <laughs> hour. I'm, I'm sure you um, ask my wife. Um, but um, I my website is buyarkomalafe.net, and um, you could type my name in Google. There's lots of resources, lots of invitations, lots of things that I'm part of doing. Um, I'm I'm taking on different invitations to do more work around the world. Um, and this hasn't been announced yet, but I'm at least at the time of this recording, the, I'm now global senior fellow for the Othering and Belonging Institute at the University of California, which means that I I get to do more traveling and get to invite more communities into research, mm. fugitive research. Because mm-hmm. um, I think we need something more than a nation state, mm. something more than legacy institutions like UN and UNESCO and World Health Organization. This is not to pathologize them or think of them as evil, but sure. we need we we need something more creative, more pedestrian to respond to these times. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you can find me in the ethereal spaces of this of psychedelic longing and poetic imagination, and also on the internet. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for this. This was truly a pleasure. Uh, and I, I am going to go back and listen to this multiple times and, and take a Me lot too. of notes. So thank you, sir. I really appreciate your time, your energy, and for coming thank on you, and sharing with my, my audience. Have a great rest thank of Thank you, Trevor. Thank you, brother. This is Trevor Bohm signing off on another episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please give us a share. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you're interested in getting a hold of my book, Man Uncivilized, whether you're a man or a woman, please go to www.manuncivilized.com forward slash the book and get reading.